0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden, who works with people internationally. And this is episode 277 of Rendering Unconscious podcast. My guest today is Dr. Todd McGowan. He's here to discuss his new book, The Racist Fantasy, Unconscious Roots of Hatred, published by Bloomsbury. I just learned yesterday that Rendering Unconscious won the 2023 Gradiva Award for Digital Media from the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. I want to say huge thanks to all of the guests and listeners of Rendering Unconscious over the years. Your support has made all the difference. It's a wonderful feeling to receive this honor from the psychoanalytic community at large and to get recognition for the work done here at Rendering Unconscious Podcast. So thank you all. Extra special thanks to whoever nominated Rendering Unconscious for this award I had no idea we were even in the running, and it was a really nice surprise to find out that I received this award. An extra, extra special thank you to everyone in our Patreon community. Your support is hugely appreciated. Rendering Unconscious podcast is a labor of love. I do everything myself, and I'm very grateful to all of you who support my work. If you'd like to sign up, you can sign up for as little as $2 a month at Rendering Unconscious's Patreon page. That's Vanessa23carl, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23carl. For those who prefer Substack, we've also started a Substack, which is similar. Vanessa23carl at substack.com The Substack only gets the weekly Magic Monday posts, as well as newsletters and other things that go out to everyone. Whereas Patreon has a lot more behind the scenes, always gets the posting notification about the podcast first, many works-in-progress updates, and things like that. Also, at the suggestion of a Rendering Unconscious listener, I have joined the Amazon Affiliates program. So, if you are going to order a book that you hear about on Rendering Unconscious podcast, why not go to the notes or the website where you can find a link that takes you to my Amazon Affiliates page to purchase the book and it sends like 30 cents over to the podcast every little bit helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, reviewing books, especially books from independent presses and academic presses is really helpful. It does make a difference on Amazon and other online retailers. So go ahead and write a review for any books that you read that you like or enjoy. Links can be found in the liner notes accompanying this episode, as well as at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. As usual, there's a video accompanying this discussion, which you can find at YouTube. Just search for Trapar Film's YouTube page, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film, at YouTube. Hi, Todd. Thank you for coming back to Rendering Unconscious. I'm so excited to talk about your new book, The Racist I, Fantasy.
1: Uh, Vanessa, thanks for having me. Good to see you again.
0: Um, I feel like this book is so on point for the times we're in. I guess it's probably always super relevant to talk about this. <laughs> but maybe you could talk a little bit about why
1: you wrote this book. Sure. I think the last time I talked to you, I was writing this book, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wrote it because, what did I write it? I felt like, so Sheldon George wrote a book that I thought was really good called Trauma and Race. And it doesn't it didn't really talk about fantasy. And so I thought there was a thing that needed to be talked about. And I, I thought that, uh, I think there certainly there were good psychoanalytic books on racism, but I just felt like there wasn't a book about fantasy and racism. And so I felt like somebody needed to fill that lacuna and i thought i might as well do it i guess <laughs> i guess that's how, that's that's really the it was one of the i think it's on the only books that i wrote in that way like i felt like there was something that should be said and had a bit said and so i wanted to, most of the time it's more like i just have this thing that i feel like i i want to write or say and and it's more about just what i feel i mean the the, the, the personal aspect was that i grew up around a lot of racism and so it was uh, in large part a kind of analysis of some of the people I grew up around to be honest so that was that, that, was, that's what, that was part of what drove me to, to write it in addition to this situa- what I felt like was the situation that we exist in today and which needed this kind of thing
0: Absolutely and you mentioned Sheldon's book and you said in, the, in this book that he read over this book right when you were writing it
1: yeah, Sheldon definitely read through, had some great comments for me. Yeah, he was he was, he was great for the whole time, yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel like his book was essential. I had him on the podcast when that book came out, and it really helps look at the issue in a different way. And then, like you said, this also adds like a different layer that's also really important to look at that's not talked about in, especially not in the common discourse, but not even in the analytic discourse so much.
1: Right, I think that's true. I mean, I think uh, that certainly the common discourse doesn't like the idea of fantasy or unconscious doesn't really play much of a role. I talk about this in the intro that there is this idea of unconscious bias, but it's not really the unconscious, the way that psychoanalysis understands it because it's like, we need to educate people out of this unconscious bias. And of course, if it's something that's unconscious, education, isn't going to help in that area. So that's, I mean, one of the things is that I'm, Obviously I'm not against education, but I'm trying to think about why education doesn't work necessarily and that's I think that's one of the areas that psychoanalysis can really has something to say right It's like that's one of the main ideas of psychoanalysis that you can't necessarily educate people out of their unconscious proclivities or or, or structures right and so that was really that was that was one of the again one of the it's, I'm not again I'm not I don't think people are necessarily wrong in what there's this the way the critique of racism is structured. I just think something was missing there and that's what I was trying to was trying to add Well, and it also
0: helps like people understand like why are people who are so like educated or know better quote unquote still right. like acting in this and this way and you even point out like sometimes the knowing better is part of it, you know people enjoy going against something they know better than.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, that, 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 that knowing better becomes a way of, then you can disavow what you know and enjoy, in opposition to that. So I think that's, I think you're, that's absolutely right. What you're saying that, that, that the, the way that knowledge can actually, like knowing better about racism can be the fuel that actually draw, that light that fire of, of enjoying racism. Right. And I, I mean, that's, I I was going to, I wish it initially had something like "Enjoying Racism" as the title, and I thought, well, that's probably going too far. Like, you, you wouldn't, I was already a little—only like,
0: psychoanalysts even, will get that. Would
1: get it right, and you know, <laughs> maybe only Lacanian psychoanalysts I, I know, will a get certain, that. A certain small <laughs> people, and even this title. So there, I, I just initially it was just called "Racist Fantasy," two words, and and the press made me put a subtitle on because there, people, they thought people are going to think you're in favor of it. They just look at the title, but you're just in favor of a racist fantasy. And the evidence for the fact that they were right, I think they were right. And I once had it on my desk when I was right, finishing the book up. I had it on my desktop, but just a file called racist fantasy. I was teaching this big class, hundred people. And I, I you know, plugged in my computer to the thing. And then all of a sudden, students started laughing, uncomfortably giggling in the classroom. I'm like, what's funny? And they're like, you put your racist fantasy, you have your file of your racist fantasy. You shouldn't have shown us that. <laughs> like, okay, like That's what you get off to. Yeah, I know, right. Like I put my, I wrote, this is I, my I said, first of all, <laughs> would someone name their racist fantasy a racist fantasy? That's absurd. And second of all, would I, whatever, would I, would I show it to you like that? But, but that's what they thought. So I think that that did actually show that the press was probably right That just that title alone might have been misleading for certain the way certain people you know think about things
0: might have made you go viral, (laughs) right? In a not in a way that I would have liked, professor and his racist fantasy, right? He
1: has a racist fantasy, (laughs) yeah, yeah. In fact, the original. What were you say? I was going to say the original the, the press that I initially sent it to rejected it but it got through the readers liked it and the press board thought that uh kind of for this reason like they thought that racism their claim was racism didn't need to be theorized that it was just empirically self-evident and and the even the attempt to talk about a fantasy was already giving it too much credit they thought so so i you know obviously i disagree with that but that, that that idea is sort of out there i think
0: yeah, that's interesting. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what the racist fantasy is?
1: Sure, sure. So my idea was that, and I, I think I don't think this is a great uh, original idea, but just I think it, it just follows a certain structure of fantasy in Lacan and, and I think even in Freud, that uh, fantasy involves a subject fantasizing about its access or its pathway to a certain object. And the racist turn is that you, in, you narrativize or imagine a what I call a racial other in, as a barrier to that object. And so the racial other ends up hoarding enjoyment for themselves in the fantasy and then also acting as a barrier to the subject's enjoyment. And so racism becomes this way of, in the fantasy, of getting, getting uh, forging access to this Object that otherwise is the access is blocked by the by the racial other. And that's just the I, and I then I look at that the way that fantasy functions in modernity, especially as a way to compensate for certain dissatisfactions that come with modern capitalist society.
0: Absolutely. And you, you point out that this is a way that the subject is able to enjoy more. The, the idea of the object through their kind of identification with the person that they believe is blocking them from their enjoyment.
1: Right. Right. I think that's true. I mean, I think that's true in every fantasy, right? That the enjoyment comes from the obstacle rather than the getting of the, whatever the object of desire is. And I think that in the, the what makes the fantasy racist is that you get off on that racial other. So there's a, there's a horrific and yet, uh, fascinating structure, right? Where the thing that the figure that's the supposedly the enemy becomes the source of of enjoyment for the subject. And I think that's really, I I think you can see that at work in every, especially in racist acts of violence, right? Because there you're both, the violent act is itself this expression of enjoyment, but it's an attempt to, to destroy that obstacle so that you can access the object. Unfortunately, here in Burlington, Vermont, we just had this racist act of violence, three Palestinian college students were, I don't know if you probably didn't hear about this in yeah. Sweden. It's like two, three days ago, three Palestinian college students, not UVM students, but students from elsewhere were here over the Thanksgiving holiday. They were shot by some, some it's a total racist act of violence. I mean, I think they're all going to live, but it was, it's an incredible, so I thought it was, it was horrific to see that logic up close. And it was clear that that was the logic you know, driving the violent act. So I think that that, I think it, it, one of the things that I like about thinking about racism and fantasy is it has an explanatory power, I think, for outbursts, both for racist structures in society and for outbursts of violence that occur.
0: We'll say a little more about that, Todd.
1: Sure. So I think that the, the what's, so the, the structure obviously can be ideological and, and, and work in in ways that are, uh, uh, you know, material ways that not necessarily phantasmatic ways. But my idea would be that the fantasy always underlies whatever that structure is. So there's a way that just the way the society is structured, some kind of apartheid or some kind of structural minoritization, whatever is working, that that provides enjoyment for a certain part of the society because it it gives. It, it presents that figure of the racial other as this outsider thwarting the full, what would, seems like the completion of the society or the way that the society can get its, uh, find its some kind of satisfact- ultimate satisfaction or fulfillment. And so that that would be, I think, explains the structural thing. But then the violent, I think, what, what's as I said about the violence, that, that, that you, you get this act that, Takes this obstacle, like sees an obstacle to the to the having its object of desire the, for the subject, and and by lashing out with violence, you both get the self this destructive enjoyment from the violence itself, and you, you feel like okay, I'm eliminating that obstacle, and I'm going to get now a direct action. Of course, it never happens, right? Like the more, I love this. I don't know who I don't love it. I mean, it's horrible horrible, but that. In towns in Germany where there had gotten rid of more Jews, those were the most anti-Semitic towns, right? So so like the more you get rid of the obstacle, actually the the more you feel like, okay, wait a minute, why aren't I really getting this enjoyment that getting rid of the obstacle promises? Well, then what can you do except to try to except think, oh, that obstacle is more uh, you know, insidious. Where Maybe is it? that's where they're like,
0: like, yeah, the big like – you know, conspiracy theory ideas. Oh, even if there's no like Jewish people in your area, like they're controlling everything
1: and you know, the right, spaceships right. or whatever. <laughs> right, like, right. It Q gets huge. Right, right. What's the, the Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene, like the space ray that's run by George Soros or whatever it is. Right. Like that. I think that's absolutely right. Like she went on whatever the theory is. It's like that the, the more, uh, uh, the, the less clear it is that the racial other is, there and empirically evident the more it becomes spectral just in the way you're saying and, and ubiquitous everywhere and nowhere at the same time i
0: think yeah and the less chance you have for actual human interactions that help people see that maybe that person is not so horrible right. <laughs> after all but i think the the thing that you pointed out as well is like i don't know that we can ever get rid of this because it's like it will always be something or someone you know it's like it will just shift to some other sort of kind of obstacle
1: right I think there's there is truth to that but uh I think it like I don't think it has to be a racial other right like I think Mm -hmm. there can be and I I wonder if you think this is right that there can be a way that you uh, uh, uh recognize that you're enjoying the obstacle right like I don't know I mean maybe that can't happen on a mass scale but that's I think that's the idea right like that's the idea of of some kind of social transformation is to see that the obstacle is not just is not just an impediment it is an impediment but it's also a enabling impediment so you in a way like you your are your own obstacle right like that's the i think that's everyone the idea. needs
0: psychoanalysis
1: if we can, right. I, know, I, I thought you would put
0: psychoanalytic like acid in the water and feed it to everyone
1: Right, right. No. I know, because what I just said about knowledge makes what I did, the thing I just said a little problematic, right? Because you'd have to, in a way, you have to uncover that for yourself. You can't just, you can't just learn it and say like, oh, okay, I recognize that I need the obstacle, whatever. Like, I don't think that it's not, I don't think it can be transmitted necessarily that way
0: yeah that's the conundrum it's like you also can't like yeah shove it down people's throats it's like the same thing with analysis or like versus psychology like you can tell people all day that you know if they exercise and do breathing or whatever they're gonna be less depressed it doesn't mean that they're gonna do it or that they're gonna be less depressed
1: no in fact the the more you tell them just like what we were saying about knowing better right like the more like the the more you know that chocolate cake is bad for you, the more enjoyable it is to eat the chocolate cake. So that's the problem, right? Like I think that that really is a, it's this whole knowledge problem that I think is, in some way, I think you're saying what you said is, is, is in, in a certain sense true, like it's intractable, right? Like there's no, at least society-wide.
0: What do we do? I feel like we were at this point last time we talked too. It's like, what
1: do we do, Todd? <laughs> I know. You know it's, it's amazing how many people... Like I, I talk on, I talk to people on little interviews or things and how many people say, okay, now what's your political plan exactly? <laughs> like, what, what do we do I, exactly? I <laughs> what do I know? I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't. Where's I, the big I, other? Yeah. yeah, I know. That's <laughs> Why what won't it want, help right. us? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> like that's what I, feel, I, I feel like saying, or I always say, right? Like that I don't, I like, of course I have no like prescription for what the exact Proper thing is it's just like a, a struggle to, I mean, to wrestle with the unconscious, but also to 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 find ways to uh, actualize. I guess I would say that notion of the obstacle and the the relationship to it, right? Like to to see, to make it more evident, uh, and to and to uh, find ways to transform the society away uh, in ways that make it evident or make it expose it, that that what's being enjoyed isn't, that, that is not the, the, what seems like the object. I think that difference, and I think this is maybe Lacan's most important contribution, right? This difference between object of desire and then the object that causes our desire, right? And I think to, one of the things that capitalism does is it, it gives us a plethora of objects of desire. But it does, I think it, it turns the focus to that away from what causes desire or what gives enjoyment. And so I think that like one of the things theoretically we can do or politically is to try to make that difference evident and, and, and you know, reveal it to people. Yeah. Because I think self. maybe if we make,
0: maybe if we help people understand it, not with the racialized subject or obstacle, but like just in general, like, you know, I, I think everybody in this society can understand that feeling of like when I accomplish the thing that I set out to get or I got the car, or I got the girl, I got the whatever, then it, I feel left like hollow, like, oh, that didn't really solve all of my problems for me. And I think everybody, maybe if we can help them understand how the mechanism works with relation to that, then maybe they can understand, they can like transfer it to this and see how you're doing that with this too.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I think it's right. Although, again, that's a, as we were just saying, that's a kind of individualized solution. But maybe not. I mean, maybe there's something about that that's transferable. But I totally agree with that. That that in a certain way, it's easier to understand in the domain of car buying, right? Or or job or relationships than it is uh, in term in, in the domain of racism. Because I think that, for one thing, racism, and, and, and I think this is what. One of the things I was trying to do in the book, I think it so oftentimes the way it functions is invisible, right? Like people like, OK, George Floyd's killed. That's visible. But the other other ways it's the ways it's functioning fantasmatically, I don't think are visible. So I think you're right. Like you have to make like these other domains. It seems more visible. And then you can translate that into the domain of, of racism. I think that's one of the that's a key part.
0: I have to tell you, my last interview was with Emmy O'Brien, this book, Family Abolition. This was a very good book. And it was super interesting to read because, first of all, it explains what family abolition is, which is not just like destroy the family, but like rather like have lots of different forms of care available for people whose nuclear family isn't ideal, which is a lot of yeah. people. Yeah. Um, but also she just does like a whole history um, on capitalism and the way the family structure has changed over the past like 200 years because of capitalism and the ways that things have kind of reacted because of that. Um, it was super interesting. And she also gives a lot of like examples. It reminded me of it because you mentioned George Floyd. She talks about him and his family and what their family was like. And then, like, she also talks about like Trump and their family and like how it's this like perverse, <laughs> what a perverse family it is. I yeah, don't know, but it, yeah. it's, it really goes into a lot about racism because, of course, capitalism and racism like go hand in hand, as you both right, talk are, about.
1: are inextricably intertwined. Right. Mm, right. I Thanks feel like I read me, these
0: that. books back to back. Because of these interviews. And I, I yeah. think I have to recommend this combo to everyone. Oh, cool. This was a really cool. good combo to read together back to back. Excellent. Absolutely.
1: Well, I am definitely checking that out. Thanks.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah, I think this combo was a really good combo to read together. Because this is like the material. You know, she's like very Marxist material. And this yeah. is like, yeah, the fantasy.
1: The psyche, yeah. And
0: how they yeah. combined. Yeah. Right. right. No, I do
1: think it's I think like. the, uh, Right. I have like a chapter on capitalism and racism, but I I, I do think that that's to think those two things together is really vitally important. Right. Like, because I think one of the things that happened in the in the wake of the George Floyd murder and in response to Black Lives Matter was that there became this. I don't know what to call it. I guess a liberal anti-racism that that was perfectly fine with sustaining capitalist relations of production, and then trying to make those anti-racist. But I think that that can't. I, th- I think those two things are incompatible, right? Like I think the, the more you're invested in in uh, commodity logic, the more you're going to be susceptible to, the, or you're inevitably going to fall into the racist fantasy into the to the racist problematic so i think that that i think you, you can't i think i said this in the book you can't really be if you're going to be anti-racist you have to be in a certain way anti-capitalist as well
0: yeah because it depends on it and like yeah, absolutely
1: talks, absolutely right
0: mm-hmm. yeah. and it talks about like you know how the like you know working class, white, like Trump base, basically, like they need to be white so that they have that, you know, like that's something that they're going to hold on to. And they're going to blame the immigrants for, for them not getting what they want or the black people for them not having everything they want. Like that's like integral to maintaining this power structure.
1: Right. I think it's right. You couldn't imagine it without that. fantasy. Right. I think that's absolutely true. And I don't think it's com- uh, confined to the US, sadly. I think it's, you know, it's like in Europe, the anti-immigrant sentiment, right? I think it's the, the, the rise in and, and India, the anti-Muslim sentiment, like just, it's, it seems like around the world, there's that same fantasy structure that, as you're saying, uh, keeps the right-wing populist figures in, like that's the, that's the source of their appeal, I think, is the appeal to that, is the call on that fantasy.
0: Yeah, that's what, that's all they've got.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. Because, because the economic program is not benefiting, I mean, this is a commonplace, but it's not benefiting that class of people at all. And, and, and in fact, it's benefiting the people that are most keeping that uh, class of people in their position, right? So I think that that's the right, it can't, it's on an economic terms. It's, it's all on this phantasmatic terms that the appeal is constituted.
0: Absolutely. And then they can identify with Trump and how he somehow keeps getting away with everything and hasn't gone to jail yet.
1: (laughs) Right. I know. He's a great figure for that. Right. Because he seems like a figure of uh, ultimate enjoyment. Right. Like he he's able to transgress in all these ways. And yet he still he still he, he, he still maintains his social position. So it's very paradoxical. Right. Like he's he's on the one hand able to. He has this. Primal father status, I think, right? Like he he has all these transgressive sins, and yet he's he's perfect. He maintains his social position along with that.
0: Yeah, it's bonkers. I'm I'm very afraid that he's going to get reelected. I think
1: I I almost think it's certain.
0: I almost think it's certain if they don't put him in jail or something.
1: Yeah, 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 which
0: doesn't look like they're going to.
1: Yeah, I don't think they are. I think they waited too long to. Processes. Yeah, it's like yeah. this is
0: years ago already. Hello.
1: Yeah.
0: Why is this yeah. happening now? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all if you want to talk about astrology, all the astrologers say that 2025, that we will have a evolution in human consciousness, like as a whole because of some like horrendous cataclysmic disaster. And I just say, like, uh, Trump's going to become president and something horrendous is going to happen worse than what has already happened. So anyway.
1: Well, they, they see that evolution <laughs> as a positive, like, whatever. That's what it takes thing. for
0: us to get there. Well, those of us who make it through...
1: So it's kind of like the like kind of like the rapture, right? Like if you survive. Yeah, this this
0: is my theory at this point. It's like okay, you know how much I don't like Christianity from growing up in it. I'm like, maybe that book is right because maybe everybody everybody gets flooded because of climate change. Everything drowns, and like the only people that are left are going to be like indigenous people that live like. On the, in the top of the Andes and the Himalayas and stuff like people that live way up high, and then yeah. those will be the only people left, and this version of society will be completely wiped out, and maybe that will be better for the Earth because it'll be like less people. They're people that know how to live sustainably on the land with the animals and everything. They're not destroying everything, and they're, yeah. they're not capitalists. <laughs> right. And right. then we can go back to that form of human. Yeah, that's that's my current fantasy of happen. Yeah, what's I mean the happen. problem is I
1: think. Yeah, isn't the problem that 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 kind of, like the the amount of population we have, I'm not sure that, I mean, we need sort of mass production to sustain that population, right? Like it's, there's certain things have gone so far in a certain direction that, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well,
0: we went from like, when the 50s or something, there was only like 2 billion people. Now it's like 8 billion people. Right. So it's that's a big jump in not a lot of time in my parents' right. lifetime, basically.
1: Right, and not a lot of. I mean, and the food production has to, but also the other, the like uh, the mass extinctions that are like are we're like basically replacing so many species with humanity, which is it's not so great. Yeah.
0: No. Yeah. No, I'm depressed. No, I know, sorry. It's okay, so I think no, about this every day. day. Know, no, What's more depressing than the racist fantasy? I know, that's what I was going to say. World know, annihilation. <laughs> right. Right. Mm, yeah. But that's where we live right now. That's reality. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. I'm like, I, don't, don't be sorry. This is my brain all the time. Or I even read an article recently. There was like some horrendous, you know, drought in Ecuador or something. But then like they were taking all the water and instead of giving it to the people, they were like uh, putting it to, to where all the computers are placed. Because, of course, there's like huge masses of like computers to store all our like pictures of ourselves in the cloud. or whatever. And they were like making sure all the water went to cool the computers instead of to the actual humans.
1: Oh my god. Yeah. That's so the, these, I mean, these things just, have a
0: lot to do with it too.
1: Yeah, I know. And and I mean that's an interesting and great example of the way that the destructiveness of these everyday behaviors is completely hidden from us. Right. Like you don't when you sit just like you said, when you save your picture, you don't think and you take like 20 pictures of some cat <laughs> or something like <laughs> I do. Like I do uh, every day. I know, I do <laughs> too. Uh, you don't realize that there's a certain, that there's a cost to that, even to the phone itself, right? Like you don't see the, I mean, this is a commonplace of critique of capitalism, but you don't see the labor that's gone to the phone, the suffering that went into creating it. And, and you all don't the see the the children who
0: that, are mining all of these materials to make the Tobol, these batteries. Right? right,
1: exactly, exactly. But, but I think the, on the other side, you don't see the resources cost of the little actions that we all do, right? Like I think that that's really, I mean, that's, I think that that, uh, it comes back to what you're saying about knowledge, right? Like that, the, the way that that you—that's a case where the knowledge just is disavowed, right? Like it's not prolific; it's just disavowed in order for this. I mean, it seems like to me, disavow is such a key category uh, for the way capitalism functions. It's funny because I think the original earliest psychoanalytic theorists of capitalism really focused on repression, how it was a repressed, like Marcuse for sure, like that's a repressive system. But it seems like to me, I don't know what you think, but disavow is like is the central psychoanalytic category for making sense of how capitalism works.
0: Absolutely. And I think like, yeah, getting us back to work from the, after the pandemic was declared over you know they were like everyone go back to work make sure you get on planes go travel we need to get the economy going you know it's just like what's happening didn't we weren't we all just like wow look the clouds are clearing up and the pollution's going away and the animals are coming out and then all of a sudden we're like nope nope back to business as usual you know
1: (laughs) i know know. like flights are flights are incredible right because when we were younger i'm older than you but when we were a lot younger Flights were a rare, like pe- people flew like a few times in their lifetime and now it's become, I mean, it's, it's the, the, the wealthier people are disproportionately doing the more flying damage, but, it, but it's, it's the the middle class on earth is the, is also like consuming or doing a lot of environmental destructive destruction through flights, right? Like that's a huge part of it.
0: Yeah. I I don't miss flying, I must say. I haven't been to the U.S. since 2019, and I might go back next year because I've been invited to speak at a conference. So okay, but like yeah, that'll be like four years. It's kind of wild. Right.
1: No, I like that. I've I, I've flown once in four or five years too. That's that's enough. It's for me. probably <laughs>
0: more reasonable. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because yeah.
0: before that, yeah, it was flying all the time. Like my husband lived in a different country. We were going back and forth, back and forth all the time. Yeah. I can't imagine doing that now.
1: I know. Well, that's a good, I think that I feel the same way. And that, I think that's a benefit of that. I mean, I think a lot of people went back to the way that they were. And clearly, like I think airline travel is back up to what it it was before the pandemic. So, yeah. That's not universal. We can
0: only do what we do, I guess. Yeah. Back to how do we fix this? We can only control ourselves, really.
1: Right. And, you know, you're doing your part, rendering things unconscious,
0: right? <laughs> and you have your podcast. One time I want I you up. and Ryan on together. Oh, that'd be fun. I think yeah. that would be really fun. Because yeah. you guys, for people who have been listening a long time, you guys have had such a, like, ride. Ryan moving and things happening, people dying. And, like, there's all sorts of things going on. And it would be nice to have you guys come on and talk about your whole yeah, he, experience
1: i wonder i yeah i don't obviously i don't know what the experience is like externally but uh, he did he has had an amazing trajectory right because when we started he was just a graduate student he had just gone from being my student he wrote his dissertation got a job and i, I it's funny cuz i don't feel like he's any different but he must i mean i must be different too obviously but i don't feel a difference in my relation to him since he got i just always thought of him as Equal and the same, so I didn't. It doesn't feel different to me, but it must be different for people that are listening. I, I, I guess I never. And for even, him. For him, right, <laughs> right, right, for him. I don't know. I, I yeah, I guess I never. Th- I, I, I would have, I'd have to ask people who listen to the to the show, but I don't, I don't. I feel like it's a, like an equal exchange between us, but I don't know. Maybe that's not right.
0: It's good. I mean, you guys both it seems like you do a lot of prep work and you really think through things before you talk and then you're thinking through things while you're talking too. So it's really nice to show like yeah, we do who a lot of well researched and well thought out. Do it in real
1: time. Yeah, he we do a lot of prep work. He does more than I do. So I, have
0: to- I was gonna <laughs> say that. <laughs> Maybe that's where the grad student thing comes
1: in. <laughs> Maybe, but I appreciate it because he he often will have like the ref, like he'll have the reference on the end, you know and things, and I just don't. So I feel like it's, I feel it's a little embarrassing. Like I feel like I should be. I'm the professor. I should be the more. I mean, he's a professor too now, obviously, but I should be more prepared. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but you don't have to anymore.
1: <laughs> I guess that's
0: true. <laughs> you know. I, I guess. What are you working on now, Todd? Uh,
1: well, I have a little book coming out in March, April, something called "Embracing Alienation." Mm-hmm. So that's but that's that's finished. Um, and then I have what do I have? I have a oh, I, the thing I'm really working on right now is for it's a thing I was doing with. Did you know, Mari Rudy? hmm yeah so i was i didn't want to do it but she asked me to write with her the cambridge cambridge approached her to write the introduction cambridge introduction of Jacques Lacan, and she wanted to do it with me and so i don't know a year maybe longer before she died we got the, we wrote a proposal for this and 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 it got approved by cambridge and then I wrote my half maybe a year ago, something. And then she was going to write her half this summer and then we were going to be done. And then she, so she never even started. Uh, and then I wrote to a couple of days after she died. I wrote to Cambridge and the editor. And I was like, OK, it's over because, you know, one of the authors is dead. And the guy was like, uh, would you want to do it? And finish it, and I said, not really. But then I—I don't know. I thought about it. I thought, I guess I would do it. So that's what I'm working. So I I have to finish that by January first or something. Coming down to the wire. But it's very—I have to tell you, Vanessa, it's very sad because uh, I still have our proposal there, and I can tell all the ways. You know, every time I'm working on a concept, I think. And I don't know what to do about this. I think Mari would write it this way and I'm doing it this, I'm saying something different and I don't know. So it's just very sad. And I, yeah, that was just, I, I can't tell you how devastating that was to me when she, I, I was in California. I was in San Francisco. The one time I flew uh, and ah, it was just, it was, a, it was like 9 a.m. We got a call and she had died. So. Yeah, just
0: really sad. I feel like, Maybe I could have like a Mari Mari episode dedicated to her. Her work was so amazing. She's such a kind person. She also read through this, you said, and gave back comments. Yeah, she did. In, in fact,
1: yeah. And so she edited this series at Bloomsbury called Psychoanalytic Horizons with uh, Peter Rudnitsky and H- Esther Rashkin. And so when it got rejected by the first press board that I told you, she said, can you give it to me? So she, she really ushered it through at Bloomsbury. So that was, that was a And she did some great, she gave me some great advice, I have to say about it and made it a lot better. So yeah. The other thing I would say about her is her, I've, I te- I'm teaching, I'm teaching a book of hers, this, I'm teaching a class called Love and the Romantic Comedy. And I'm teaching her book, The Summons of Love. And it, this has happened every time I teach a book of hers, that it's the the students like it the best and they feel i think she did such a great job and i think what students like is she brought together uh like theoretical sophistication with really approachable prose style and I, I i don't i don't know anybody else that does it as well as as she does really or did it as well as she yeah
0: yeah she's a beautiful writer your writing's pretty great too, Todd, I must say. And I, I had a million things underlined in here that you just have these like one line phrases that just like summarize an idea in this like succinct way. That's so like, yeah,
1: it, well, that's it, very it's nice. really good. That's very nice. I, I'm a little, but I, I feel like she's not this. I, my writing is, a, even the thing you said, like it's a little choppy, like it's like little, like little staccato. And she's, a, there's a kind of nice, Flow to her writing that I I just I mean she's almost like a like a like Hazlitt or something yeah like like it's literature yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. it's true yeah
0: Yeah. Yeah. yours it sounds more like you're talking
1: right I'm like a theorist talking right like I I really feel I try to write like I talk and she's really like she's I wonder if it's to the fact that she's You know, English wasn't her first language. She was, and that's amazing to me that she's able, she didn't have, she, everybody else I know that is writing in their second language has to have somebody else look at it and correct it just on the basic, you know, grammatical style. She did not need that. So that's just amazing to me. Uh, But I wonder if that's part of it, right? Like she's approaching the language as a, is a little bit in this external way. And so she's, uh, really trying to manipulate it stylistically or conscious of that, maybe in a way that those of us, you and I, who write internally to it, maybe don't, aren't conscious of that.
0: It's a good point. Yeah. Interesting. No, yeah, no, no, I'm sad about that. But could be know, sadder than the racist I, I went... fantasy or global annihilation <laughs> of Mari Rudy.
1: I know, I know. I, I, uh, the last, I'll just tell you a funny thing. You might not think this is funny, you might think it's terrible. But the last (laughs) phone call, the last email I sent to her, so I talked to her on the phone and I I I sent her a she was in the hospital. And I think you know this story, right? That her because of the Canadian healthcare system, the doctor didn't wouldn't she asked him to remove her breasts immediately and he said no, and that she couldn't get in to see another person for a long time. And so I did not know that. That is true. So it's basically look. obviously for universal health whatever but it was basically the canadian healthcare system that killed her and so the last thing i sent her was an email with a link to that song blame canada from south park and that's like a funny song but i I, that that was and so she wrote me back she's like funny but tragic of course and and she died so yeah it was
0: that's horrible Uh, that's also interesting that's a whole other thing especially with women and women's rights is like doctors not being willing to uh take their reproductive organs you know like i've worked with people and like in when i worked in the hospital and stuff that like didn't want any more children wanted hysterectomy or wanted their tubes tied and doctors would say no they'd be like no like you you might change your mind etc etc and it's like
1: Dude, (laughs) like, dude, like, why is this not not her choice? I know it's just not your call. And this guy, it's Vanessa. You're exactly. It's exactly what he said. He's like, I'm not going to do it because you'll regret it later on. Like, good. He's talking to so. He's talking to like a woman who is a lot smarter than him. Like, let alone that it should be her (laughs) choice. Whatever. But who, who is he to say to her? It's like I just I found that so so obviously patriarchal and paternalistic, but just so arrogant, right? Like, how does he, who, who in the world is he to say to her, like, I, I know you're going to, you're going to, and, and I, I was talking to her right when this happened. And I said, she, right when she got the diagnosis, I said, well, it's just obvious what you're going to do. You're going to have your breasts removed. And she's like, absolutely. I'm not even going to, I don't even care about that in the slightest. I said, you know, I knew that about you. Like, you just, I, I can just, I knew that wasn't a thing for you. And then the doctor responded in that way. And then it ended up being, okay, so I think her diagnosis was in January. And then she had the surgery in November. So that, that 11 months, by that time, the cancer got to her sternum. So it was just, and then the, the thing that really galls me is I have quite a few Canadian friends. But on one occasion, I was like, look, this this is like, this is a, the Canadian healthcare system is at fault. And like, okay, American system is terrible. And so they have this pride relative. And this person was like, that didn't happen. No, you can, that couldn't have happened. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, okay, you have to, it clearly was that, that there's a, there's a, a something in that system that made it possible for this one doctor to have. And I understand that it happens in uh, everywhere in the world, but that, that in, in this case, like it was the, the fact that this one doctor was able to have this kind of authority over her seems just insane, right? Yeah, I I think this happens
0: all the time. I'm sure this happens all the time. Like I said, and I I know somebody else who wanted breasts taken off and the doctor did the same things and you're going to regret it so I'm at least leaving a little bit or whatever, you know? And it's like doesn't matter what your reason is if that's what you want that's what you should be able to have you know and then of course we can get into yeah women's rights trans rights and all sorts of things from there but it's a really a big issue um i think especially for for people wanting to do anything yeah with their sexuality gender reproduction doctors have way too much authority about it
1: way too much way too much right I mean she was a fifty five year old woman. I mean, like she's like
0: Yeah, she's not gonna be breastfeeding.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Let like, her what, make
0: her own decisions.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I the, the 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 reasoning I mean, it was solely thinking of her as an attractive sexual object by that doctor that made him make that decision. You know, I think if she had been someone that he didn't find attractive and sexualized in that way i don't think he would have said that right mm-hmm. like yeah like, maybe she had been much older or something like yeah that. oh, that's what i was thinking like if my mom had gone into him when she was 70 he would have mm-hmm. said okay fine right? mm-hmm. like i think but he's like really i'm not gonna
0: ruin, ruin this woman this attractive exactly. woman
1: this attractive woman i'm not going to be the one to butcher her, her good looks right like i think it's just disgusting right like that but it's yeah sorry i just took us. i thought i was going to trying to lighten things up in some way. No, oh, we, I was we my, we're not.
0: We're not. Light. <laughs>
1: uh, I was talking about my class on love, which has been great. But she's—I was going to have her come in, and so the class has been like, "Why do you keep talking about this?" So i I'm te- I'm, I, I was going to have her come in and do a little thing, and then I—I I, I just can't. Whenever we're talking about her, I can't get it out of my mind. You know, it just—it's been so devastating, and she's—you know—she know, just such a force. I just He's saw it. Wonderful.
0: We'll have we'll have a special episode podcast so yeah. we can all talk about how great she was for people yeah. who loved her and loved her work. That would be a good tribute.
1: That'd be nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because yeah, I would like to do something. I also would love to talk about Nestor Bronstein because uh, you know, he passed away of his own choice. But um his writing was also super literary and beautiful. And I was reading his book on uh what was it on?
1: The Jewish book.
0: Yeah, the Jewish book. Yeah, oh it's my really good. God, that's such a yeah. good book.
1: Yeah, yeah. Did oh you know him? Oh my God.
0: I've met him at conferences, but yeah. um, I know Manya was really good friends with him. She introduced oh, me she to him. Oh,
1: she was. I had dinner with him one time, but I didn't realize I just, it was like 25 years ago or something. So mm-hmm. that's really, but I thought that Jewish book was. The only thing, of course, I, I, I'm against this fetishization of the French. So I want to be able to translate Jouissance by enjoyment, which he hates that idea. But I thought the book was great, actually. Like I thought it was really both he there's two books good recently, I mean, that book is older and it just was put in, translated into English recently. Mm-hmm. But I the Darien Leader book, have you read that on Juice? Mm-hmm. It's also very good, I think. Yeah.
0: It was really good. Absolutely. I had him on the podcast. I'm such a Daring Leader fan. It's not It's not very often that I get, like, fangirly, but I get fangirly yeah. around Daring Leader, and I'll tell you why. My very first international uh, conference that I got to speak at was um, Todd Dean in St. Louis of Todd Dean, yeah, and I presented this. I had just left the hospital, and so, like, when I left the hospital setting, I was, like, you know, I have to keep talking about like what's going on in American mental health because it's so fucked up, you know, <laughs> like yeah. like that's like my mission, which apparently I'm still doing. So that's good. <laughs> and I ended yeah. up presenting my Ma- and I were on a panel together. She talked about like working in the French system and with, you know, the psychotic population and how they like and how they do things so differently and they like let people have their symptoms and things like that and then i presented a case from like what we do in the usa which is horrible um and so i talked about that and then um everyone was like oh that's so good afterwards i was, I was so happy because it's like my first time presenting you know international conference or whatever, yeah. with all these different people And then, um, and like their leader said, Oh, that was so good. And you're doing really good work because I basically like, you know, even though my supervisor was saying like, treat the patient this way, I was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I was basically psychoanalytic in my hospital setting to the disdain of all of my supervisors. (laughs) i was like i'm just not treating adults like that i'm sorry like i'm gonna treat them like humans because they are yeah yeah Yeah. Uh,
1: no matter how many
0: like labels you've thrown on them and how many meds you're throwing at them you know um so that made me feel good and then when darian gave his keynote uh he used my case as an example so like little baby psychoanalyst me was like (laughs) oh god and he like kept talking about it like the whole talk he like wow. talked about it yeah he like used it like the whole talk as an example so,
1: like so vanessa the fan is reversed like first he was your fan Then
0: you became his fan, right? Oh, I love that interpretation. (laughs) And then I had him on the podcast. And then, of course, this is what happens. My computer or his computer, I don't know which one, but one of them wasn't working right. And, like, we couldn't get, like, it working. And then, like, finally, I was like, well, I'll just turn off my video because maybe that'll make the bandwidth better. And so then at least his video was working. But then it was only, like, 20 minutes (laughs) (laughs) Because the whole hour was wasted with technical problems, it was so Uh, sad for me.
1: Did you? But you did one more recently
0: (laughs) where that it worked. No,
1: I'm too. I'm too embarrassed from that. Oh,
0: that was the one. That was the one. (laughs) That was my one podcast with Darian. Oh, god. I'll I'll ask him again later, but I have to like. Yeah, I'm so embarrassed that the tech was such a problem, Darian. If you're out there, I promise my tech is usually not a problem. Todd's been here like four times; we've never had a problem. Have we never Todd? had a
1: problem? No, <laughs> I know. I think it's a. Don't you think it's probably the tech is a response to the, to the how how desirable the guest is. So my, it's like have it's my really, hysteria. <laughs> no, no, no. If it's a really good guest, then the tech fucks up it doesn't want, it, like it's just to the trauma it's of the literally
0: great... the only time that's happened to
1: me okay. but it's also right. probably well, the
0: only person that I get fangirly about so uh, it must go. be my yeah. vibes right,
1: right, <laughs> right you unconsciously sabotaged your computer in some some way I
0: yeah though right. i think it was on his end <laughs> <laughs> now you should hope he's not listening <laughs> i don't think he's listening <laughs> Well, with that, it was really great to have you here,
1: Todd. Oh, Vanessa, always <laughs> great to see you.
0: <laughs> and we'll do a Mary Rudy episode, and we're going to do a Bergman episode with Mac, and it's going to be fun.
1: Okay, that'll be great, and I will uh, I will have forthcoming. The other thing I'm working on is a review of your great Bergman edited collection. So that's Okay, I'm
0: fangirling about that, too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that'll be great. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Todd. I know that's like
1: below your pay grade, but we appreciate it. No, it's not below at all. I'm excited to be doing it.
0: Thank you. And in the meantime, everyone go out and get the Erases Fantasy. Bye,
1: Todd. Bye, Vanessa.
0: Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Todd McGowan about his new book, The Racist Fantasy: Unconscious Roots of Hatred, published by Bloomsbury. And remember: if you're going to order this book from Amazon anyway, why not go to this episode's page at the main website, renderingunconscious.org, and click on the link to it there that helps through my Amazon Affiliates program and sends 30 to 50 cents to the podcast. It also has links to Todd McGowan's other books, which you can find on the site. Be sure to check out episode 106 of Rendering Unconscious podcast, Professor Sheldon George on psychoanalysis, trauma, and race. If you'd like to check out the episode with Dr. Michelle O'Brien and her book, Family Abolition, check out Rendering Unconscious episode 274. And for my discussion with Dr. Darian Leader, check out Rendering Unconscious episode number 218. For more episodes with me and Todd McGowan, you can listen to Rendering Unconscious episode 178, episode 75, and episode 39, as well as episode 14. Huge thanks as always to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious podcast. You can visit his website, carlabrahamson.com for more and check out his record label, highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Rendering Unconscious has a new social media presence. I've just started an Instagram account for Rendering Unconscious itself. Just search for Rendering Unconscious. You can also find a link to it at my personal Instagram page rawsin underscore that's r-a-w-s-i-n underscore and now the song surreal and dreamlike from the album all poets are pornographers a collaboration i did with pete murphy which you can find at pete murphy's bandcamp page pete You can also find my music at Spotify, including my music with Pete Murphy. Just search for my name, Vanessa Sinclair, or Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy. Enjoy. Making it a little more surreal and dreamlike. synchronicities every day, people have kind of gone wrong, different separate times for everything, in shock, in a female mind, a flame that will endure, forever, 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 uncorrupt and pure, 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 pure. the respectful abuse of pleasure, pleasure. Pleasure, 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 pleasure. take a shower shower in a female mind. A shower In a female mind. Take a shower In a female mine Take a shower In a female mind.